The following podcast is an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Rochester, Minnesota. You can find out more by visiting harvestrochester.org. We're in Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to dive back into our series, Greater. All right, uh, we took a break from it last week, uh, but we're diving back in through our study in Hebrews. And uh, if you're visiting with us this morning or if you're new, uh, let me just catch you up to speed really quick. Uh, so we're in the book of Hebrews, and Paul is writing this letter to uh, the Hebrews. And the whole central theme, the main focus of his writing is to encourage those believers, to encourage those people not to drift away from Jesus, not to step back into kind of this Old Testament law, Judaism, works-based system of a religion, and rather hold fast to their relationship with Jesus Christ that they had because of his sacrifice. And so uh, he's going to continue with that case today of Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than anything we can do. And today we're going to look at another central figure that would have been in the Hebrews' eyes, the high priest. All right, so we're in Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 16 to begin. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now we'll get into the role of the high priest and uh, who he is and why he's a big deal in just a moment, but I think the first problem we have already encountered, maybe you're already thinking it, is nobody walked in here this morning struggling through this idea that maybe the high priest is greater than Jesus, right? Nobody did that. Adam, did you wake up this morning and you were like, man, I don't know. I'm just not sure if the high priest, Jesus, really? Okay, that's not really something we're like struggling with today. But so let's get some context together. We need to establish who and what this high priest is and why he's such a big deal to the Hebrews. Okay, so here's the context. Looking back to the Old Testament, specifically the books of the law and then books like Leviticus, okay, some really stirring reading. Um, but uh, there's this system established by God to allow the people to make a sacrifice, to make atonement for their sins, to kind of bridge the gap between his holiness and their sinfulness. This system is established, and it involves a lot of sacrifices of mainly animals, and there's all these rules and regulations and times and days and festivals and booths and things and all these things going on that these people have to keep to try and stay near to the holiness of God, to try and bridge the gap. And it's all very complex, it's all very strict, it's all very serious, okay? It's not like this is a suggestion, it's a law, do this or pay the consequences type of thing. And this wasn't the Jews kind of like making a feeble attempt to establish a system to make themselves look good. It wasn't them saying, hey, let's get this in place and maybe God will see that, okay? No, this was from God. This was a gift from him. Like, hey, here's a system to try and get this back together. And part of that gift to them was establishing the high priest, Okay, so the high priest um, was a big deal in this system. So here's a picture of the guy. Here's a picture of the high priest today. Very cool looking dude. Okay, and uh, he was called by various names in the Old Testament. Okay, the priest, Numbers 3, the anointed priest, Leviticus 4, the chief priest, 2 Kings 25. 
And uh, he had a breastplate made of gold. It had 12 precious stones on it, one for each tribe of Israel. He wore an ephod, which was like a type of apron, all very carefully fashioned. He had on a blue robe with bells on the hem, a checkered coat, a turban with a gold plate that had inscribed onto it, holy unto the Lord. See, the high priest was basically, he was the Lord's. He was owned by the Lord. And uh, everything that was used in worship had that same inscription on it, holy unto the Lord. It was set apart for that purpose. And now the, the workmanship that went into these garments was like second to numb, okay? Think like Gucci, Versace, okay? Like big deal. Like this wasn't just some piddly little outfit. It was like the highest of the high-end stuff. And if you're really fired up about that, maybe you're a fashion person, right? Go read Exodus 28. It lays it out in like immense detail. Um, but the high priest was the only person, uh, the big deal of his job was he was the only person allowed to walk into the Holy of Holies, once a year to make atonement, to make a sacrifice for the people, okay? And he was the only one allowed in that room. But even then, I mean, it was just once a year. It was a very specific day, okay, that they celebrated, and uh, um, that was his whole job. And now there's this guy named Josephus, okay? He's a first-century historian, and uh, we have historians in our day, right? Jesus had some in his day. And so Josephus wrote this about uh, the high priest, okay? Check this out. The priests are continually engaged in God's worship. With his colleagues, the high priest will sacrifice to God, safeguard the laws, educate in cases of dispute, so he was sort of like a judge in a courtroom, punish those convicted of a crime, and get this, any who disobey the high priest will pay the penalty as for impiety towards God himself. So it's kind of hard to even communicate how highly they esteem this guy. He was a big deal. In fact, uh, Josephus said later on in his writings, after the death of Herod and his son, the high priests were entrusted with the leadership of the nation. So not only was this guy a religious leader, he was like societal, governmental leader as well. Um, so we live in Minnesota, right? Okay, so I want you to picture uh, John Piper. Okay, everybody know John Piper, kind of a spiritual giant, okay, Minnesota church guy, okay, like theologian, big deal, okay, in our faith. Um, and then let's say... Adrian Peterson, all right? Purple Jesus, right? I mean, he's like, big deal, everybody. That's what they call him, just saying. Okay, so like, big deal, Minnesota. Uh, like, people would kind of widely accept him. He's had some discrepancies in his career. But for the most part, it's like, on the football field, he's everything. Okay, so you got John Piper, Adrian Peterson, and then Barack Obama, like our current president. So like, the status of being president of the United States. Okay, you got those three guys in your head. Roll them all into one guy. That's the high priest. I know you have some really weird imagery in your head of John Piper and Adrian Peterson, like mixed together, really short guy. And, okay. But that's the, that's the point. That's how influential this guy was. He was like all those figures rolled into one guy. And so his, like, this is a mind-blowing thing for Paul to say to the Hebrews. For him to say, okay, they've got this guy that's like the central figure of their faith. Everything kind of relies on this guy to make sacrifices for their sins. And here's Paul saying that Jesus is the great high priest, literally that Jesus is the greater high priest. He's the greatest high priest. And so it would be really shocking for them, not so shocking to us, but shocking for them to hear that um, you know, this guy was not just equal to, but he was greater than the high priest. Okay, so everybody got that context with me? Like, this is a big deal that he's saying this. This is not just some, like, random guy in their faith. This is, like, the guy. Okay, the high priest. Jesus is greater than the high priest. So that's the context. And now let's all ask ourselves the question we're already thinking, why does it matter to me? 
Everybody ask that. Go ahead, turn to someone next to you. Say, why does it matter? Okay, hey, hey, you could have just asked, okay? I'll tell you why it matters. Here's why it matters, okay? So the high priest, his whole goal, his whole job description was based around being a mediator for the people to God, okay? He was, the, he was the bridge. He was the guy who could go in and make sacrifices on their behalf, and he would enter the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, okay? Uh, kind of symbolically carrying the sins of the people into that most holy place, Okay, sound kind of familiar? A guy putting sin on his shoulders, walking in and making a sacrifice for it. Okay, so kind of a, a big deal. So I want you to symbolically think about this guy carrying the weight of the sin into the thing and then associate this word with him, redeemer. Okay, that's what he was doing. He was redeeming the people. The definition for redeemer is one charged with the duty of restoring the rights of another and avenging his wrongs. That's exactly what this guy was doing. But what Paul is asserting and what we know now through the gospel is that Jesus is the greatest, the final redeemer. Read again with me in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest. I have that boxed and just wrote redeemer above it. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Who has passed through the heavens. I love that phrase, okay? Just even relating it back to this guy walking, he'd have to walk through a curtain. There was a curtain that separated the rest of the tabernacle from the Holy of Holies, and this guy would, was the only one allowed to walk through that curtain. He passed through that curtain. And then you have Jesus, who's like passing through the heavens, okay? Like no one else can do that. He's in the third heaven, not only just in the holy place, but in the very presence of God sitting at his right hand, and he's talking to God about us. He's advocating for us. That's, that's pretty awesome, okay? So you got the, you know, the high priest who's once a year walking through a curtain. No one else can go there. Okay, that's kind of cool. Jesus passing through the cosmic heavens, sitting in heaven where no other person is, sitting at the right hand of the Father saying, Hey, I love Chris. Hey, I love Kristen. I covered their sins. That's not just pretty cool. That's pretty awesome. Okay? So pass through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. What's our confession? Simply put, our confession is the gospel. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth and believe that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. That's the confession we make, that we're not Lord, that Jesus is Lord. We can never be good enough. There will never be enough animals to sacrifice. I need the Day of Atonement to be every single day because I will never measure up. But Jesus did it. Jesus is the greatest sacrifice. I need a Redeemer. That's our confession. And we can do that. We can have that confession and believe Jesus is greater because why? Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, we don't have a Redeemer who doesn't understand why we need to be redeemed. He can't relate to our temptations or our weaknesses. No, he fully understands. So my wife and I, we have a 17-month-old son. He's 17 months today, exactly. Um, so we've kept him alive 17 months. Woo. All right. And uh, it's our first boy. And uh, he is, uh, his name's Mason, um, the word, active. Let's go with that, okay? Um, active. And uh, 
You know, I could try to explain it, but I'm just going to show you. Okay, so I got this video of Mason, and uh, this is us, like, nap time at the Thomas house, okay? So, like, calm, we're trying to calm everything down. Like, hey, let's put on some pajamas, Mason. All right, let's put on some pajamas, and this is what happens. Watch this video. So I don't know, maybe we're doing something wrong at nap time, but, <laughs> uh, and that was like round 10. I mean, that wasn't like the first time, I like, finally got my phone out and like, okay, like, we're just going to keep going with this. This is a long game. All right, so that's, that's our son, okay, and uh, super active. And my wife uh, didn't grow up around boys, really, so this whole like Energizer bunny phase is like so odd to her you know, that he just keeps going and going and going and going and going. All right, so she, uh, she planned something the other night, and she's like, hey, would you mind, like, just watching Mason in the evening, you know, like, feed him dinner, put him to bed. Uh, you'll have him for, like, three, maybe four hours where he'll be awake. And I'm like, yeah, totally. Like, you know, I love my wife. I want her to go get filled up. She does this every day of her life. Like, for sure, I can take him. We'll have a guy's night. It'll be great, okay? So I have him for, like, four hours. That's a long time. <laughs> and uh, not a long time, right, in comparison. But I have him, and uh, so she comes home, like, late that night, and she comes in, and the house is just wrecked, and I'm just in bed, just like, I just pass out, finally got him to sleep, right? And I wake up the next morning, I'm like, honey, like, thank you for what you do. I was so wiped, guys. I was so tuckered out just from following this kid around. I didn't even do anything, like, special with him. I just kept him alive for four hours, and I'm just, like, done, down for the count. She, like, cleans the house and, like, makes food and stuff. I'm like, I don't know how you function, okay, with this kid around but he's a blast. Um, but I was able to sympathize with her, right? So now when she comes to me and she's like, man, I'm struggling, like, as a parent, like, here's some of my weaknesses. Like, oh, it's, just, it's just a lot. I'm not, like, pull it together. Like, you know, I can sympathize. I'm like, yeah, okay, I had him for, you know, four hours. I had the countdown going. And uh, you do this every day. Really grateful for her. But I got this tiny little glimpse into her life, and I was now able to sympathize with her. And uh, she could talk to me about those things. She could come to me with that. But isn't that true that we can't really sympathize with somebody unless we've experienced it firsthand? You know, like the most overused phrase in the world is like, I'm so sorry. You know, like I can't, I can't possibly know what you're going through. Like that's true. Because if you haven't gone through it, you can't possibly know what it's like. And that's where we can kind of get, I know I kind of get like, okay, so when it says this, that, you know, he was tempted in every way, like, Come on. He was the son of God. Like, he can't truly have experienced everything I experienced. He didn't feel the weight of everything I experienced. He, he knew he was the son of God. He lived a perfect life. But scripture is clear that Jesus experienced the fullness of a human experience. That he was fully God, yes, but he was fully man. He felt every emotion, every desire, everything, yet he never sinned. He never failed in those moments. So then I kind of think, okay, so he never actually failed, right? He never sinned. So you can't say that he really understands the weight of sin because he's never felt like the crushing guilt of like, oh, I failed. You know, like, he, yeah, maybe he was tempted, but what does that truly mean? Like he never actually sinned. He never did anything wrong, so how can he know? And uh, you need to know that's a shallow view of the weight of sin. 
So one of my one of my passions is weightlifting, right? And this is super geeky, but I love to watch videos of like Olymp- Olympic weightlifters in like slow motion. Okay, it's like a 40-second video of like one thing they're doing, but it's like super slow. You see every little part of their technique. You can see like from the first pull to the finish, and it's just like in this perfect movement of strength and coordination and agility and technique, they just like nail this lift. It just like fires me up, right? And so you got like, you got like uh, some of these guys uh, lifting like 400 pounds. So here's a picture of this guy, Dmitry Klokov, like scary dude, right? I mean, he's like about to just lift this tons of weight. And so he's like coming up to the bar and he steps and he sets his hand and in one perfect movement of strength coordination, he just snaps that thing overhead. Okay, and he stands overhead and he stands up with it, just like mastered the weight, like nailed it, you know? So let's say I'm watching Dmitry do this live, right? And I got my sweet USA singlet on. It's like super tight and feeling good. I'm slapping chalk everywhere, I'm chugging pre-workout shakes, you know, in the back. I'm just fired up. And he goes and he lifts and he's like fired up, he's screaming, I'm screaming. And I walk out there and I'm doing, I do, I have the same shoes. I have the same like things around my knees and the wrist wraps, all that stuff. Okay, I got everything he's wearing. I walk up there to the bar, same exact foot placement, put my hands the exact same way, breathe in the same way, make a loud grunt just like he did and lift that bar maybe like a millimeter for like a split second before I like pull my back. And I'm like, okay, someone carry me off, right? And I could tell you that that weight was heavy. I know that weight's heavy. I just tried to pick it up, super heavy. Who felt the weight of that more? Was it the guy who lifted it for like a split second? Oh, it's super heavy, right? Or was it the guy who, with the combination of strength and technique and power and coordination, was able to lift that bar completely off the ground, put himself underneath it, and then stand up with it? Jesus felt the weight of sin to its maximum. He was just strong enough to be able to handle it. So yes, he understands how heavy weight of sin is, and he understands that more than you and I ever will. Verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's the point we need to understand this morning, that Jesus is a better redeemer than me. Super simple this morning, but it's something we have to understand, that Jesus is a better redeemer than me. He is the great high priest who passed through the heavens, sits at the right hand of the Father, and understands us completely, so he knows exactly how I need to be redeemed. And he's not just sitting at the throne, he's sitting on the throne of grace. The throne of grace. This would have been a new concept to the Hebrews, uh, they would understand what the mercy seat was. Okay, so the mercy seat was on the Ark of the Covenant in that holy place where the high priest would go. And between the two cherubim, between the two statues of the angels, okay, there was this part where he would make the sacrifice and the very presence of God would come down and receive that sacrifice. They call it the mercy seat because here's the high priest standing there begging God to have mercy on the people, saying, God, we've sinned, we've fallen short, here's our sacrifice, we've done everything you've asked, please have mercy on us. What's the definition of mercy, right? Not receiving what you deserve. Did you ever play the game Mercy growing up? You know what I'm talking about? You ever play that game? Kind of a sick game as I thought about this week. But basically, you'd uh, have your hands and you'd just shake hands. And I'd be the squeezer and I would just start squeezing Adam's hand as hard (laughs) as I can. Squeezing, squeezing, squeezing. And Adam would just take it until he couldn't take it anymore. And then he'd go, Mercy, Mercy! Okay, right? So sick game when you think about it, because as the squeezer, I'm saying, you deserve this punishment. 
you take this. You handle this pain. And until that person couldn't receive it anymore, and then they would cry for mercy, like, stop giving me what I deserve. Relent. Relinquish the pain. So that's what was happening at this mercy seat. And that was the high priest's job, is to, just to beg God to relent, to say, God, we know that we deserve death. We know that we deserve what we've, what we've done. But have mercy on us. But the throne of grace, the throne of grace is a whole different story. See, the throne of grace represents this like, idea of prayer that we can approach God with all of our weaknesses, all of our faults, and say, God, I'm a sinner. I'm not good enough. I will never be good enough. And we find, yes, mercy at the throne of grace. God saying, okay, well, you're not going to get the punishment. Even more than that, we find grace. What's the definition of grace? Receiving what we don't deserve. God's saying here, not is there just not death, there is given to you life. I paid for that weakness, I paid for that sin, I covered it, it's done, it's finished. School's almost over, right, students? Any students in the room? Put your hand up, whoop, whoop. school's almost over, right? Almost there, maybe some of you are done already. Homeschoolers, you don't count, you've probably been done for like three months. <laughs> How about any teachers? Are there any teachers in the room? Yeah, all right. So I heard this story of this teacher who uh, these students walk in on the first day, and the teacher's like, hey, um, straight up, here's the deal. Everything that happens in this class will point towards the final. And the final is the majority of your grade. If you pass the final, you pass the class. If you fail the final, you fail the class. End of story. Okay? Really straightforward. So the final comes, okay? And the students walk in, and it's like dead silent. It's like super nervous. You already have the girl like crying because she's convinced herself she's going to fail. And she hasn't even taken the test yet. She's like crying in the corner. You got the guy like gnawing on his pencil because he's like, my parents are going to kill me if I fail. Right? Okay, super nervous. Everybody's super stressed out. They've been up all night studying, pounding monsters and coffee, and they're like in 10th grade. Right? Not a good combination. They walk in, and the teacher's like handing out the test, you know, kind of like dun, 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 dun. Out the test, and he's like, okay, begin. Everybody flips their test over, and at the top, their name's already filled in, and every answer is filled in correctly. Everyone gets an A, everyone passes. Everybody's kind of looking around like, what's going on, you know? And the teacher stands up there and says, thus ends the lesson in grace. So I think every teacher here, you should probably try that this year, right, students? I think every teacher, I would commend you to try that out. You know, I think it'd be good. But that's it, man. There's a final coming, and we can't do it. We're not going to pass. We can't measure up. We don't know all the right answers. And Jesus hands us the test, and it's filled in in red ink for his blood. And he says, it's done. You pass. Jesus is a better redeemer than you. He's a better redeemer than me. Okay, chapter 5. Paul's now going to explain a little bit more about the high priest in comparison to Jesus as a high priest. So starting in verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. But of this he is obligated, because of this he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God 
just as Aaron was. Okay, so that's kind of setting up the human high priest, like the job description. Here's what it looks like. Here's who this guy is, where he comes from, and how he performs at his job. But we need to see that compared to Christ as the high priest to kind of get this, uh, continue to shape our understanding of Jesus as greater. So everybody up for some comparison stats, right? You, we all like to do this. I love to like shop, and when I find like two, I'm like between two things. Like I just Google like this thing versus this thing, and someone with a lot more time and a lot more money has bought both of those things and is now going to shoot a random YouTube video talking about those two things, and I can see which one's better, right? Awesome thing. So we're going to do the same thing right here. Um, so here we go, uh, comparing these two things. Three, I have three comparisons between the human high priest and the great high priest who is Jesus, Okay. Number one, human high priest, just a man, versus Jesus became a man. You see it there in verse 1, chosen from among men. See, this guy is just another face in the crowd, okay? He was in the line of Aaron, he was in the line of the priests, but he's still just human, okay? And he would be called by God and chosen from among the people, and they would take him, and uh, you're the high priest now, okay? And he would serve as high priest, but he was obviously just a man. He was born, he had a mother, he had a father, he knew who he was and where he came from, just a man. Jesus, however, took on flesh and dwelt among us, laid down his deity to pick up the mantle of human and became a man. So already he's looking a little bit better. Second one is tempted and failed versus tempted and triumph. Verse 2 and 3, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. See, this guy took his job really seriously because it wasn't just the people's necks on the line. It was his own. Okay, he had sinned. He had weaknesses. Just because he got some sweet priest threads and some, like, some swag hat that said, Holy unto the Lord, he wasn't all of a sudden like this perfect dude. Okay? He had sins. He was sinning. He was making sacrifices for himself. In fact, most cases, he had to make the sacrifice for himself first so he's pure enough to actually sacrifice for the people. Jesus, on the other hand, had no stake in the game. Right? He was perfect. So when they started mocking him and spitting on him and scourging him, he could have been like, peace out, gross, and like, boom, beamed up right back up to heaven, been like, figure it out. Good luck finding lambs all the time. Okay? Um, he didn't have a stake in the game. But... He chose to endure that suffering because of his love for us. And he triumphed over all those temptations. Because the high priest, was he failed. Tempted and veiled versus tempted and triumphed. And then lastly, elevated temporarily versus elevated eternally. Verse 4, And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. See, when a high priest was chosen, most of the time they served for a lifetime, kind of like the Supreme Court, right? They would just take that position and, you know, you're in the line of Aaron and you're now high priest and you're going to be high priest until you die. And obviously, once you die, you're no longer a high priest. But then kind of like politics started to get involved and they would like start to elect a guy to be high priest. And if he wasn't acting the way they wanted him to act as high priest, they would boot him out and they'd get a new guy in there. So it was a very temporary position. And then you have Jesus who reigns eternally, who's sitting on the throne of grace, not just like the seat of grace, like throne means he's ruling. He's in charge. And he's assumed this title of great high priest, and he's not giving it up. No one can take it from it. He's not going to lay it down. It's his forever. So that leads us to believe. Three comparisons, pretty obvious this morning. Who's the winner, right? 
So we can conclude that Jesus is a better redeemer than anybody else. Jesus is a better redeemer than anybody else because of these comparisons. It's pretty simple to see. And reading on in verse 5, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, that's God the Father, who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All of this just continues to prove that Jesus is a better redeemer than anybody else because God had established him to be the redeemer from the beginning of time. All of these other high priests, you can find them from the beginning of Scripture all the way through this point where Jesus is, all of these high priests were not established so that the people would look around and say, man, how sweet is the high priest? The high priests were there so that eventually when Jesus came, they would go, we get it. And the high priest's only job was ultimately to point to Jesus, not himself. And Christ didn't choose that for himself. God ordained his son to be that, and he reigns in that forever as the perfect redeemer. He's proving to them that that's why the high priest wasn't anything. Paul's saying this guy is a good thing, but he's ultimately there just to point you to Jesus. And we need to see that as well, that Jesus is a better redeemer than anybody, anything else in my life. And we've just proven from verses 1 to 6 that Jesus fits the job description of high priest far greater than any human being has ever filled a position. And we're going to wrap up in verses 7 through 10. And we're going to see exactly how Christ lived out this role as high priest while he was here on earth and became the greatest redeemer. Look at verses 7 through 9 with me. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. In the days of his flesh, which means when he was alive here on earth, walking among us, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This is a reference to a, a time period in Jesus' life in order to show us that he was beset with weakness, right? We know that's a, a part of the, the high priest's job description, if you will. It was part of what he had to do. He had to be able to sympathize with the people. So Paul's referencing a time where this would have been uh, really clear to the Hebrews that Jesus had his weaknesses, and that's kind of an odd thing to say, that Jesus would have weaknesses, but he understood weakness. He felt it. He endured it. And I want to show that to you. So um, flip over to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And what Paul is referencing here, uh, these loud cries, these supplications with this uh, desire not to have to endure something is uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. So as we're in Matthew 26, I want you to look at a really interesting uh, night in the life of Jesus. We're going to start at verse 36. Jesus prays in Gethsemane. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here, while I go over there and pray. So Jesus had his main 12 disciples, right? 
and he's got them all with him. They're in the garden, and he's like, okay, you guys hang out here. I'm going to go further in the garden and pray. Um, and then he takes his main three guys with him. Verse 37, And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then Jesus does something that he doesn't do at any other point in the New Testament. Look in verse 38. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So let me try to pull this into today so we can wrap our minds around it. Jesus is uh, in the garden and uh, he's so distressed, so afraid, so overcome that he feels like he could die at any minute. And he pulls his greatest friends together and he tells them this and then he says, please, please, please pray for me. At no other point in the New Testament do you see Jesus asking for prayer, but here he's asking for it. Verse 39, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I've always been really hard on the disciples for falling asleep. Like, seriously? Like this, your like best bud just like asked you for prayer for the first time ever, and you can't even stay awake? Like, what are you guys doing? But then I was kind of researching this this week, and you know what I learned? I learned that the Passover meal, so the meal they had just come from, the Passover meal, especially in the first century, would usually include up to, if not exceeding, four glasses of wine. Like, if I had four glasses of wine, I'd be out too, man. It's a big deal. I mean, if you grew up Baptist, it was just grape juice. But, okay, moving on, verse 42. <laughs> Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. Now watch this. He prays the same prayer. It's the same exact prayer. He doesn't change it. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Do you hear what he's inferring? He's saying, like, I, I don't want to drink this. If I don't have to drink this, don't make me drink it. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. I'm guessing they were like, no, man, we weren't sleeping. The rest of my eyes were asleep. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. See, Jesus, God in the flesh, shows up in the garden and he's so distraught, overwhelmed, distressed, fearful, exhausted. So much so that the weight of that stress is weighing on him to the point where he's sweating drops of blood. The book of Hebrews is saying to you and me that in this moment, all the weight that accompanies sin, all the shame, all the guilt, all the despair, all the overwhelming force of our own failures falls on the soul of Jesus and begins to crush him. Now flip back to Hebrews 5, looking again at verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. 
Now, the way I was raised, I would just assume that whenever it said suffering around Jesus, it was referencing the cross. Okay? Everything was about the cross. But it's interesting because in this moment, Paul's not talking about that, is he? He's talking about the garden. He learned obedience through what he suffered. See, what's happening in the garden is that every cell in Jesus' body is saying, let's get out of here, let's leave. Every nerve, every impulse, every thought, every idea ravaging through his body is that just 10 minutes from here, they're grabbing torches and they're getting chains together and if I don't leave now, I'm going to be slaughtered tomorrow. And everything in him is, let's go, let's get out. And all the guilt and agony and shame and weight and pressure of sin is befalling his heart, and yet he still doesn't sin. He doesn't climb up in a fig tree and wait it out. He doesn't run and decide to deal with the consequences later. He prays and he prays and he prays, and then he gathers around him his closest half-drunk crew of people and says, hey, pray for me. And they pray and they pray and they pray until it's time to be obedient. And he steps forward and lets Judas kiss him on the cheek, the very lips that he created, the very muscles in his face that wouldn't even be functioning unless Jesus allowed it, betrays the Son of Man. So he understands, he can sympathize, he has felt our weaknesses, and he carried those weaknesses all the way to the cross. See the incredible, beautiful irony of Jesus as the great high priest is that he was also the perfect sacrifice. He paid for it himself. See the high priest in the Old Testament, he had one card to play. Right? Hey, uh, we sinned. Bring an animal. Uh, we sinned again. Bring an animal. Right? Like a broken record. Over and over again. Bring an animal. Everybody said? That's all he had, man. But here's Jesus as the high priest. Hey, uh, we sinned. I covered it. Jesus, I, I sinned again. I paid for that. Come to my throne of grace. See, Jesus is a better redeemer because of his sacrifice. It's our last point this morning, that Jesus is the best, the greatest redeemer because of his own sacrifice. It's his sacrifice alone that satisfied the mercy seat, that gives him the, the authority to sit on the throne of grace, and his sacrifice through obedience, perfected in his suffering, allows him to see our sin, see our weaknesses, and not go, man, when are you guys going to figure it out? But he says, come to me. I get it. Come to my throne of grace. I am the great redeemer. And the worst part about uh, this morning is that I can't choose anything for you. I can kind of use my mouth and pray. And that frustrates me a little bit. There's some people, man, I just love to shake them. Like, just believe. <laughs> Not very effective. But uh, here's how we're going to end today. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing. And I want to invite you to do something. Um, if you don't have to rush out of here, don't. I know it's a holiday weekend. You've probably got plans. You're already thinking about some things that are happening this afternoon and tomorrow, but Jesus is so worth the extra time.
So if you've been running, uh, maybe it's time to quit running. And if you kind of have been dealing with this, I'm not that bad. I've kind of got this figured out. There's a lot worse people than me. I don't really need to be redeemed. Um, I would invite you to check your ego a little bit, lay it at the foot of the cross, and understand that the measure is Jesus. There's no one good, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Maybe you're here this morning, you're like, yeah, I've got that whole not good thing on lock, man. Like, I, I've got that figured out. And you have no idea what I've been through. I, I mean, you talk about a great high priest, a great redeemer, like this guy can't cover what I've done. I would offer to you the same thing that Jesus offers to you, and that's you don't have to carry the weight of this. You don't have to share the shame and the guilt and the despair. He's covered it. You can confess, you can pray, you can get help. We'll have people down front after the service who would love to counsel you and pray with you. You're like, man, you have no idea the darkness that would open up if I shared that stuff. You're right. I don't. But I do know that there's been some phenomenal things that have happened when men and women choose to lay their mess at the feet of the great Redeemer and let His work on the cross, let His work over our lives do what it's meant to do. So this is my prayer, this is my hope for you, that you would run, that you would run to the throne of grace and find mercy and grace in this time of need. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for my brothers and my sisters in this room. And God, for the people here who are just kind of checking you out. I thank you that we can come into a place and sing some songs and open up your word and see what you have to say to us. I'm so grateful for the gift that is Jesus. That we don't have to look to a religious system or the position of a man as our redemption. But that redemption is found in the blood of Jesus. God, we're a mess. We've been a mess for a long time, but because of the cross, because of our great high priest, you don't see us as a mess, but as broken people offering our lives in gratitude and worship to you. That you have established a relationship with us You desire to show us more and more who you are and how you are greater. Lord, may we take to heart this message to the Hebrews that we don't need to run back to our way of doing things, trying to make ourselves seem good or put our hope in anything but Jesus. God, give us this moment in your presence to just rest and know that you have done all the work We run to your throne of grace. You are our help. Help us to see your mercy and grace so readily available. God, it's because of your blood you wash us. Amen.